When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's over simplistic to call this good versus evil, but the thing that gives me comfort is that at every turn in Washington, he's gotten away with it. At every turn at the polls, he hasn't. His candidates that he has endorsed have not won. The Republican Party got its ass handed to it in 2018. So if we win in 2020, honestly, it will be consistent with what we've been seeing. I'm not making a prediction just yet, but I will say that is what it is for some of us. It's existential. Does good triumph over evil or is it the other way around? It really is that serious. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. Hi, Sharon. Hey, Raman. How's it going? It's going. California's burning. I lost power the other day because of the wildfires and the wind. Oh, God. I know. I'm not coming out there. (laughs) Give me snow all the time. So, Sharon, have you voted? I have, actually. I voted by mail. I filled out all the bubbles. Wait, are you a fake voter? Did you vote for New York or California? I voted in California. So I actually registered myself. I made sure I registered before the deadline with my new address. Got the form in the mail about a week ago. And they were really great about it. Like They sent me an email so I could track it and the whole thing. And it arrived. I filled it out. I dropped it off at a legitimate ballot box because all that other crazy stuff is happening. So I went to a local library and dropped it off there. And I submitted my vote two days ago. Nice. No sticker, though. Did the, did the sticker come with the mail? The sticker mail-in? came they, they... in the mail, yeah. What? I got I to go find that. I actually never like put it on anything. But now, now that you've mentioned it, I'm going to go find it and take a picture with it and put it on Instagram. <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> How about you? Have you voted yet? No, no. So my state doesn't offer early voting. And, you know, we're paranoid. I'm <laughs> I'm not paranoid about catching the virus. I am. But I'm more paranoid about my vote not counting. In, you know, Connecticut, we're kind of safely blue, but the town I live in, I've mentioned, is kind of reddish. Mm-hmm. So my wife and I, we've decided we're voting in person. I will be up at 6 a.m. on election day. I will have a bagel and coffee because Michelle Obama told me to pack a bag. <laughs> <laughs> I will be listening to podcasts while I wait in line to cast my vote. Oh, and I wonder who you're going to vote for. Yeah, this is, that's not a tough one. So, so yeah. this is probably going to be one of the most important elections of our lifetime so far anyway. And we all hope you've made a plan to vote or have already voted. Yeah. And so for the week of this 2020 election, it did not feel right to just keep posting our normal conversations as great as they are. we got a ton lined up for the coming weeks, but we decided to get a little help from our friends. Hi, Rajiv. Hey. 
So many of you may or may not know Rajiv Satyal, my original goof-off at work friend from my younger years. Rajiv also happens to be a nationally, maybe internationally known comedian, and he was one of our first podcast guests. It's so good to hear your voice again, Rajiv. It's good to reconnect with both of you, Sharon (laughs) and Raman. Yay! And I know you two, you and Raman, have been having lots of thoughts about just the state of the world and the general affairs when it comes to politics and other things. And and you in particular have been making yourself a lot more vocal out there about the election. I would agree that it is one of the most important. And as far as I'm concerned, the most important. They always say that, but it is. I mean, things, those can be true, right? I mean, it, each it's escalating. time. It's escalating, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like it, it, the stakes get higher, and and sometimes I assume sometimes maybe they do get lower. But I want a boring election. I want a boring election. <laughs> well, in the series that I'm recording, A to Z, right? A to Z. Yes, thank you very much. The M stands for make politics boring again. Make politics boring again. I love that. My other podcast, I'm going to have already aired by now, but something we were talking about character and leadership by a Republican who worked for Obama, former CEO. But he was like, you want people who have character, not people who are characters. Uh, <laughs> <I'm> like, uh, <laughs> he said that, not me. And uh, we both love this guy, Scott Galloway, the NYU professor. He also has a podcast, but he said numerous times in the past few months, he's like, I just don't want to have to think about government. I don't want to be up every day thinking about this. So I don't know, man. So have you voted? I have not voted yet. My wife, Hersha, has voted. I am filling it out tomorrow. And there's a Dropbox about a mile away. We'll probably walk it. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Looking forward to that. Do you guys remember the first election that you guys voted in and what that was like? Well, it would have been, I turned 18 in 94. And I think that I did vote in that election. Yes, in fact, I'm positive I voted. Now, that wasn't a presidential election. It was an off year, but I did vote in 94. And the first presidential election in which I voted was 96. That was Clinton's second one, right? Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. So that was that, no, I impeachment think... happened in the second term. So that hadn't happened yet, right? Yeah. In fact, 45 is the only president to be impeached in his first term. I think Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton were in their second terms. And it was in 98. And the trial happened at the end of, I think, the beginning of 99. Well, so beyond that first election and and this one, what do you think was the most important election that you've ever voted in? I would say 04 was really important. And I voted for John Kerry over George W. Bush. And I really thought John Kerry was going to win. And I remember reading a website, and it was probably my favorite named website ever. It was called John Kerry is a douchebag, but I'm voting for him anyway.com. What? <laughs> but you know, no, regime, it's, it's, that's the fear I have. I felt that same certainty in 04 mm-hmm. because there was a war and it was being mishandled and all of these things. And I was just so certain, mm-hmm. arguably even more certain than I was in 2016. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm afraid of this time. Like, I'm really, I'm scared, man. I'm terrified. And I felt very confident in 2016, as many of us did. And what I think a lot of us don't understand, and a lot of folks on the outside of this don't understand, but including a lot of us, until it's vocalized, maybe even still you won't, or maybe you'll disagree, and you'll be wrong. But I think the election of 45... Now I just sound like a 1945, <laughs> like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 20. I was we born can say DJT, yeah. your old roommate. We can steal his language. 
Yeah, that's right. Or I was born in uh, 1927, one, one of the few pivotal years of the 20th century. But I really felt like it changed the way I see myself, which I talk about in my show, The Man in the Middle, in terms of my self-perception in this country. And it changed the way I looked at, like, I'm like, do I understand where I live? Do I understand the country? Do I understand people? Well, yeah. that's kind of important when you're a stand-up comic. If you mm-hmm. feel like you don't understand the audience, when you go into a general market and you go into any small or big town and you go, I don't understand the people here, that's an existential crisis for you. Yeah. I had that same exact revelation. I remember the night that he who shall not be named, can we just say that? <laughs> Voldemort. Yeah. Voldemort, that he won. I was actually, I was teaching a class at General Assembly and the class went till about, I want to say like 9 or 10 p.m. So nobody was paying attention to me at all. Like I'm standing in front of the room, I'm talking about whatever, not related to the election. And all the students are literally on their computers watching the polls mm. as the results come in. And Towards the middle of class, this woman just gasps because it was very clear at that moment who was in the lead and that Hillary was not going to win. Mm -hmm. And we just stopped and we literally all gathered around her laptop and she was literally like, how can this be happening? And there was a sense of dread that filled the room. Mm -hmm. And I remember just thinking, wow, I was so sure, like I was so sure in my heart that we would have a different turnout than what actually happened. And, and I really, just like you, I felt like I was completely like, I hate to say it, like a, like a stranger in a foreign land. I was like, Mm -hmm. wow, we live in our own little bubble Mm -hmm. and there's a whole group of people outside of this room and outside of this city and outside of our immediate communities that feel completely differently about really important issues. Yeah. I remember that night, I had to get up early because I had to ride the train into Manhattan, go to my job, right? And I had a kid. And, you know, we were just on this, like, round-the-clock schedule. So 9 o'clock at night, you know, couldn't tell, a little worried. But I was like, I have to go to bed. I got to be up. And I purposely never keep my phone in the bedroom. But that night, I plugged it in, right? So I go to bed. You know, you wake up at 2 or 3 because you think the baby's crying or something. And I looked at my phone just quickly, Google News, what happened? And I was like, this isn't real. This is a bad dream. I'm going back to bed. <laughs> and then I remember the next morning, got up, checked the news more consciously. I was like, ah. I got on the train from the Hudson Valley town I lived in to, to Manhattan, to Midtown. And then I walked through Midtown to my office in K-Town. And it was just like, I don't, it wasn't a ghost town. Everyone else was on the train with me. Everyone yeah. else had to go back to work. And, and normally the train, it's quiet because everyone's kind of in the zone. We're all working, sleeping, listen to a podcast, but everyone was just kind of like had this death stare in their eyes and the streets of Manhattan were just as busy as ever, but it was quiet. It just felt like you could feel a pin drop. And that feeling persisted for about a week or two until, you know, the crazy started (laughs) and Mm -hmm. it just hasn't stopped. And I don't know, man. I don't know. I would say two things to that. One thing that really bothers me is, Sharon, I don't live in a bubble. I mean, we all live in a bubble, right? Of course, we have our own experience and our own lived experience, our own life and perspective, of course. But, you know, and I followed Raman's footsteps of, of doing all seven continents. But even before that, it's like I go all over the world. And I don't only go to like Paris and Milan. I mean, I go to small towns, not just college campuses, but I go to small towns. They aren't. And people are like, yeah, but you do Indian gigs. I'm like, Sometimes, yeah, a lot of the time, but I get out into the community. Yeah, when I met you and I hit the road with you, we went to a lot of small towns in Ohio and Kentucky. Yeah, yeah. 
I remember that Paducah, Kentucky. I mean, I don't know if we went to Chillicothe. Zanesville. Zanesville, Ohio, where our friend Andy Gibson hails. And there are other, you know, it's, I don't. That's what threw me so much. And I remember I made a prediction about Obama's electoral vote total, I think in 08 maybe, or maybe it was 12, but I think it was 08. And I, I called it within like five electoral votes and nobody was really that impressed with that. And I was like, really? I don't think, I think that's kind of impressive. I mean, I did all this analysis. Nate Silver wasn't cool yet. Nate Silver wasn't as cool. Yeah, I know. I was like, I guess I was ahead of my time or maybe I just needed to sound nerdy or I don't know what it was. Not that I don't sound nerdy, but I, I anyway, for myself, I was like, well, that's good. I'm in tune. And it, it's not like, oh, look at me. I'm so awesome. It's more like, oh, okay, this makes sense. I, I travel around. I, I, get, I have my finger on the pulse of the nation and the world and I get it. And then when this smacked me in the face, that's where the bubble thing really bothered me, A, and then B, to the point about where we were in all of that. I mean, I think that's what really bothered me. We had an election night party, and we had a lot of people over. I mean, over the course of the night, probably 30. And as you get older, 30 is a lot. I remember when 100 used to be like, ah, it was kind of, it was kind of a small party. It was about 100 people. And at any given point in time, it was probably 20, and, and the, the results came in. And I remember standing in front of the TV and where it really sunk in and Rakesh, my brother in New York had texted me saying, I, this is looking really bad. And I remember texting him going, don't worry, we have it. Like there's no way. And Pennsylvania hadn't been called. Maine hadn't even been called yet. And that's where I was getting nervous in North Carolina and Florida had gone down really hard. And then I remember getting to the point where I'm like, wow, this is really happening. And I kind of half through slash dropped my phone. So it wasn't at anybody or anything, but it was kind of like into the, into the carpet. And we, we since remodeled because I'm like, I don't want to remember where I was standing. So let's just redo the entire house. And so <laughs> we, uh, I, I went back to my room and my friend Richa, who plays a main character on Mindy Kaling's show, Never Have I Ever, she reminded me of this. I don't remember this. But the other day she goes, I remember you came back wearing all black. And I had gone to the room to not cry, but to gather myself. And I said, y'all can stay if you want. And people put on their coats and started to leave. And then I said, Hersha and I really want you to stay. And that's a very different statement from you can stay if you want. Mm -hmm. We really want you to stay. And everybody stayed and got really quiet. And I have to thank my friends who stayed because it was a moment where you really felt vulnerable and wanted people you know to be around you. Yeah. So I want to back up a little to our younger years, the, the rosier times. When I turned 18 and I pr was preparing for my first vote in Bush v. Gore, and remember, I grew up in Alabama, so the state was going red. It didn't matter. And I voted for Nader, I'll admit it, because it was more like we need better third-party representation. I didn't fully understand things, I would argue, sure. back then. But I did start having a lot more conversations on politics with my parents, who were immigrants, like but like you guys. And in one of those conversations, my dad said that he understood why a young person like us would vote more progressive. And that one day I would understand why an older person like him would vote conservative. And I'm an old person now, right? Mm -hmm. And I have a mortgage and I have bills and investments and job security or, uh, or maybe even lack of job security. And I worry about these things. I worry about my daughter and none of my leanings have become politically conservative. And I've had arguments with my parents and the other uncles and aunties about this. So I don't know. I mean, what, what have you guys is, what's your experience with your parents and their leanings? Have so I think, I hate to say this. My mom is a Republican. <laughs> my dad is. Well, they're, they're, they're small business. Your parents are small business they owners. They are. They're small business owners. And what's interesting though, I can't remember. I feel like my mom hasn't voted though in many mm. years. 
Unless I just totally lost track of that. But as I just said that out loud, I was trying to remember if I remember. Your mom's going to call you right after. I know. She's going to be like, why are you talking about me? But so her beliefs are Republican, but I actually don't think that she has voted, at least not as I was older and was cognizant of whether or not she was going to the polls. My dad, on the other hand, is Democrat. (laughs) And he always votes Democrat. And he would bring me to the polls with him and shares that belief and backs that up from actually taking action on that. So the two of them are not on the same page politically. But I also sometimes wonder if my mom is just, to your point, she's a small business owner. There are a lot of financial benefits, right, that they reap from that perspective. And so her beliefs at least in terms of the financials and the tax breaks and other things make sense because they are aligned to to the way that the red side, the red party typically tends to develop policies. The red party? This isn't Game of Thrones. <laughs> Winter is coming. Winter's fucking here, man. What about you, Rajiv? I mean, there's this thing about the uncle party, I call it. Like, yeah, the uncle party. Yeah. I appreciate both of those perspectives. And Raman, what you had said, there's an old quote that's something like, if you are 20 and you're not a liberal, you don't have a heart. If you are 40 and you're not a conservative, you don't have a brain. (laughs) And that's funny. And of course, I like pithy stuff and aphorisms. And, you know, it's cute. It's funny. I, I heard that a long time ago. I heard it when I was maybe 16 or 17 or something. And that quote has stayed with me. And I think people generally do get more conservative as they get older. But here's what I think is more important or or the larger superset of that, which is in people's old age, and now people can get offended if they want or not, but let's just say in the latter part of their life, which I think 60 and above is fair enough to say that most people aren't living to be 120. I don't think anyone has. So over that age, people either soften or they harden. And I was talking to a PR person out here. She took me to go see it was a great alt show. It was Patton Oswalt. She knows him. And it was Kamel Nanjiani and David Cross and uh, a couple other people. I know, Raman, you're the one who turned me on to David Cross. And so it was just, it was a really great show. And I remember she and I were grabbing a drink afterwards. And I said, why is it that comedians don't get better with age? Like, why is that? Like, I understand why athletes don't, but why don't comedians get funnier? Like, we get to a certain point. Sometimes it's your first one, but usually it's like your second or third special or a few years in or whatever. Like, maybe around year 20, 22, that's when you're really killing it. But after that, there is a drop-off. And I don't know that she had ever thought about it before because she took a second and she answered with the best thing I've ever heard. I think it's the first time I ever asked it, and it's the best answer to this question I've ever heard since. And she said, you know... I think because anger is funny and bitterness isn't. And comedians are people who get bitterer (laughs) over time and you just are like a pickle. And there's a certain like Louis C.K. Rest in Peace talked about how his bits get to like they ripen, but then they spoil. And it's almost like you can imagine comedians not being like fruit, but being bitter like a pickle or something. And it's like it gets to a point. It's really funny. This tastes really good. And after a while, it's like, oh, my gosh, spit this out. And. I think that's what happens with some people. They get softer in their old age. I've seen that with some uncles and some fathers because our community still votes, you know, 78% for Hillary and it's looking like 65% for Trump. So when people say, well, all uncles vote for Trump, that's not true. Although the incidence amongst uncles is higher than it is for aunties, I would imagine. But that's really what I think it is. It's a superset of do they soften or harden? And I think hardening goes more towards conservatism. And I think softening goes more towards liberalism. I got to ask now, I'm trying to do the math in my head. How many years have you been doing stand-up? So full-time, I've been doing it 14. I started in 06. You got, you got eight good years ahead of you. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, <laughs> I'm getting better. Stuff. And then I'm going to start to fall off. Yeah, that'd be my guess. Oh, man. 
Who's the first president you guys remember having like a point of George Washington? Was that? Sorry. <laughs> I was saying George Washington. I thought it was a question. Yeah. Sorry, go on. I'll <laughs> no. stop. I'll stop. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln. Oh God. <laughs> You're both fired. Um no. Oh, God, yeah. Who's the first president? Or no, I quit and Rajiv, you can have the show. <laughs> You're done. Oh, yeah. Thank you. see, see you guys. I'm quitting. No, who's the first president both of you guys remember actually having a point of view on beyond like, oh, he's the president. So therefore, you know, when I was a kid, the first president I remember, I was born during Jimmy Carter, but I remember mm-hmm. Ronald Reagan. Me too. And he was awesome because, yeah. you know, America. Yeah, I was a kid. Star Wars. And then my brain started to form. <laughs> like I, I didn't understand politics, but I, I wouldn't tune out the NPR or conservative talk radio. My parents would play in the car. Mm. I, I would listen or, you know, I, while I was bugging my dad to flip Peter Jennings on to the cartoons, I'd listen. Right. So mm-hmm. I guess my question is, what was the first president you felt like you started to have a point of view on? I'd say Bill Clinton. Same. Why? Yeah. Well, Sharon, why, why Bill Clinton? What did you... I think is we're all the same age. Well, we're yeah. older. But. I think really it, <laughs> that's older, it's yeah. more of a practical perspective. I think at that point, I don't remember how old I was, but I was old enough to have. Did I vote for him the first time? You couldn't have. No, you're my age. So no. no. Okay. Did I vote for him the second time? No, right? I didn't no. even vote Rajiv for did. him. We our first election second was time. Bush Gore. Was Gore. Yeah. I don't. Maybe I was just old enough to understand. I remember the saxophone on Arsenio Hall. I thought that was cool. Like, I think there was something, I mean, he had star quality. I hate to say that, right? But you're right. I remember the saxophone. I just remember him being really charismatic. I remember tuning in to his fireside chats or whatever they're called. And just really like listening to what he was saying and and believing in, in him and trusting him. To the point where I actually feel like I did vote for him. But you're right. I wouldn't have been old enough. Well, I I have to ask Sharon, because you're a girl. Yes. Like, I didn't know anything about anything yeah. during Monica Lewinsky and the impeachment. I just didn't. I kind of knew, but I didn't even understand it because, yeah. you know, I was lame. But You were lame. <laughs> no, I mean, in the sense, let's let's just not even get into my... Okay, point. got it. Yes. That needs its own podcast. That's a, yeah, yeah, that's a different The lameness of Raman. All that, together. That pretty much is this podcast. No. <laughs> when all that shit went down, mm-hmm. as a girl, mm-hmm. you were probably more woke to the ways of the world. What was your opinion all of a sudden? to the guy. Yeah, it changed. But I think like you, not that I didn't understand it. I don't think I understood the gravity of it. And I almost feel maybe this is just because it's from my own lens, but I almost feel like the world didn't understand the gravity of it because of the way it was handled. You know, like if that had happened today after the Me Too movement, he never would have I just don't think he would have walked. And I, like, I remember at the time, Monica Lewinsky was treated as if she was a perpetrator in some ways. Like yeah. she was clearly the victim, but people were making fun of her and that just wouldn't happen today. So that was kind of like, I knew, I knew he had done something well, wrong. I mean, I'm sorry. Come on. Everything right. that's happened since 2015. Like, what do you mean? Um, it's, well, I, here's, uh, so it's different, but the girl is not being blamed, but the guy is still not getting in trouble. Well, really? He's has he gotten in trouble? Come on, I'm talking about Trump now. Sorry. I'm oh, right, Trump. right. Yes. Well, he's the exception, though. That <laughs> I hope it's the exception. All crazy is why he gets away with it. Like why him? But that's a separate piece. Everyone else to whom the laws of gravity apply, I mm-hmm. think, have been. To your earlier point about Louis and everyone else, you're right. Yeah. He's the only one who hasn't been me too'd. Right. Correct. Exactly. 
And that's just because I don't know if you talk about it through, for, for this episode or a different one, but I think he just, he operates on a completely different plane and he has a whole set of different rules that don't apply yeah. to him. Yeah, well, that's, that's true. Well, it's it's interesting that you said, it's like, Rajiv, you talk about the laws of gravity, you know, the laws of physics don't apply to him. God, that scares me. I mean, like, what are we going to find out this week? You know, it's, well, I mean, the, this is the, the final rule is coming, you know? It is. It's a comeuppance. And that's why it is so important because it does tell you, you know, it's not enough to, it's not, it's oversimplistic, of course, to call this good versus evil. Of course, the heart of the, what is it? The line of between good and evil runs through the heart of every man, the old quote, right? Or every person to update the quote. But I think that's true. Of course, I think we're all Gandhi. We're all Hitler under the right circumstances or wrong circumstances. You can go very right or very wrong. And so I think we all have the potential to be really good and really bad. That said, I do believe that it's a spectrum. I think there are good people. And at some point on that spectrum, you move over into the bad side of the spectrum. And he's pure evil. I don't say that for comedic effect. E is for evil in my A to Z series. And I, I talk about the seven deadly sins. I'm not even Christian. And I say he's got all seven of them to a 10. Like he's gluttonous to a 10. He's greedy to a 10. He's lustful to a 10. Like he's the epitome of every single sin. And so... Why it doesn't apply to him, I don't know. But the thing that gives me comfort is that at every turn in Washington, he's gotten away with it. At every turn at the polls, he hasn't. His candidates that he has endorsed have not won. He got the Republican Party got its ass handed to it in 2018. So if we win in 2020, the Democrats, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, honestly, it will be consistent with what we've been seeing. I'm not making a prediction just yet, but I will say that. That is what it is for some of us. It's an existential, again, does good triumph over evil or is it the other way around? It really is that serious. So another thing, Sharon, actually, I've been meaning to ask this to you. So, Oh, no. <laughs> Surprise. This is really about interviewing Sharon. Amen. <laughs> uh -huh, uh -huh. No. Okay. So my little girl, she's four and a half. And now she understands countries and flags. Like she mm -hmm. literally points to flags she sees on the street. She waves a flag around the house. And she now knows what the Chinese and Indian flag look like. Show and tell this week is I. And so she's taking like an Indian thing, right? Aww. But she's not aware of the election and the president, right? Yeah. So, and I'm glad. I'm like, thank God I don't have to explain this to you. Mm -hmm. Although I'm about to go pick her up from daycare and I will probably be playing a Crooked Media podcast. But Sharon, your kids are older. Yeah. I mean, if you ask my daughter who the president is, she knows that there is a president, but she probably confuses them with a the king, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm guessing your kids know who the president is. Like, yeah. what do they know? Not just what do they know about him? What are they processing? What are you and your husband telling them to, to Rajiv's point about good and evil like, right. and the seven deadly sins? How do we you don't, talk to them about this guy? What's funny is my husband and I don't talk too much about politics in front of them, or I guess it doesn't come up directly like that, but my mother-in-law... <laughs> has a lot of strong opinions. And I remember when 45 was first elected, I overheard my older one being like, he's a liar and he's a scoundrel. And I was like, where did you, where did you hear that from? Who told you that? He's like, I listen to Bill Maher after you go to sleep. <laughs> no, grandma says it all the time, he says. And I was like, wow, that's fascinating, right? Because she's a kind of, I guess it's just her age group, but they've got the news on all day long. Like they just kind of literally, it's it's just in the background the whole day. So mm -hmm. she's responding to things. She's got opinions about him and stuff like that. So there's that. There's that veil of maybe he's not a good person, but I don't think that's grounded in anything. 
I think it's confusing for them. I'll be honest. I think it's confusing for them because I think they are taught in school and just in life that somebody in that seat has a lot of power. And that and that is true. I think that part is very true. But the implication is that the person with all that power is also the the best person to be making the best decisions for the world, right? Or it's the yeah. person that's most capable. There's a really good uh, quote by Frank Herbert, the guy who wrote Dune. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to butcher it. Uh, my friend Josh told it to me years ago. And he was like, we want people in power who are uncomfortable with the idea of power. And when they are in power, it is our job to make sure they remain uncomfortable. Hmm. Hmm. And I've been thinking a lot about that quote for the last four years. And I was like, this guy's comfortable. <laughs> like, he's way too comfortable. Yeah. 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 And I, I actually think that that's why a lot of us are confused as well. And we're so bothered by it because there is that inherent need or that intuitive connection that you, or expectation, I should say, of somebody who's in that position. Rajiv, what's in the weirdest moment for you in the context of this election? Or it's just even this the shit show dumpster fire that has been 2020? I think it really is the personal aspect because my job so you think about stand-up comics right what is so amazing about the field of stand-up comedy and i don't mean that as good or bad but just amazing in the sense of like this is a mind-blowing concept you see these folks like russell peters or dane cook or gabriel iglesias and some of the ones that get really big i'm talking like arena style big when i know Raman, you and i have nerded out on music a lot and some of these bands right I, I think you were there the night we saw the killers in front of 1500 people right they go on to play if not the super bowl halftime show the equivalent of right, that right. right and so that is kind of like watching a tennis player hit a ball 120, 130, 140 miles an hour with a racket. And it's impressive. But the World Series just wrapped and the LA Dodgers just won. And then Turner spread COVID all over the field. But what's incredible, (laughs) even more so than watching a tennis player, even though I grew up watching and playing tennis because I'm Indian, is a pitcher, not a bowler in cricket, a pitcher can throw a ball 100-plus miles an hour just from standing there. That is insane. And that is what it is for stand-up comedy. You're standing there with a microphone, not a guitar, not a drum set, not anything else. You are standing in front of 15,000-plus people, in some of these cases 20, 30,000, even if it isn't that scale, let's say 300 or 100. We're the only people, and I'm saying we, I'm not Dane Cook or Russell Peters or Gabriel Iglesias, but our field is the only one in which you are going to pull that many people based only on your thoughts. Sure, there are speakers. I'm sure you could find exceptions. You like Scott Galloway. I don't know how many people you can put in in an arena. Probably a lot. But you look at these people who just get there on their thoughts alone. They're standing there with a microphone. To, to use the old term, it's a man and a mic. Now, do you update it and say it's a person and a mic? That's amazing to me. That is an amazing achievement or theater. It's just strange, right? So stand-up comics are our thoughts. That's all we are. And so when you've got this existential crisis of do I understand myself and my place in the world, I know I sort of talked about this, but raising the stakes on it and saying, can I, you know, Tommy Lee Jones says this at the beginning of No Country for Old Men, the greatest film of the millennium, when he says, okay, I'll live in that world. 
And it's amazing. It's the very beginning monologue of that film. And he says, you know, I'll be part of this world, I think he says. And it's a decision to get up out of bed and go be part of this world. Not in an aerial sense, but in a Tommy Lee Jones sense. And I, I feel like I need Biden to win to be part of this world. I feel like there's a little mermaid crack in there, but <laughs> I already made it. I said not Ariel. I said Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs> yeah, we're on the same page. Yeah, Ariel. It's my favorite Disney song, so and my least favorite font. But you know, oh, you that was <laughs> so that was that was, <laughs> that was terrible. We'll edit that, that was out. a dad joke. <laughs> yeah, that was a serious yeah. dad joke. Um, your, your, your font is Comic Sans humor. <laughs> Um. <laughs> All right, dude. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, everybody. Yeah, this has yeah. been tip, tip your weight stuff. Okay, so look, you know, be it Stephen Colbert, John Stewart, Bill Maher, Dave Chappelle, and you know, to a lesser extent, you. Oh, um, <laughs> <laughs> a much lesser extent. Those sure. are facts. <laughs> facts. I'm with you. Uh, Rajiv's got eight more years. These other guys, they're they're gone rotten. The jester, right? You, we, we've talked about this at length. The jester plays a role in our discourse, mm-hmm. but combining again the dumpster fire, never mind of DJT, but the pandemic and not being able to go out and do anything. The nature of your work has changed, and I'm guessing you're not hitting as many clubs, events, or flights. So, mm-hmm. how has the work evolved? How's your never mind the work? Well, the, the work, but your role in society is the jester. The jester doesn't exist or the jester is filming a Zoom call at home and we're all streaming it on YouTube. Like what? what's going on? How do you connect with people in the way that you are supposed to for us? Look, it's possible. You look at someone like Andrew Schultz who now has over a million followers on Instagram and is making these amazing videos that have sort of become the gold standard for comedy. And there was a marketer recently who had released, I think an interview or at least a story, it went semi to quite viral on Twitter. And Andrew Schultz was a guy whom the comedy clubs didn't touch, the industry didn't touch, Hollywood didn't touch. I'm, I'm largely in the same boat. And it's inspirational to go, wow, this guy as a comic killing it on the New York comedy club scene. And he films his own special. He puts his own money into it. 25 G's doesn't sell. He goes over to Netflix, Amazon. They're like, yeah, thanks. No, thanks. And then he decides to start making his own content and he's making these short videos that are hilarious and they are resonating with people. So it is possible. But beyond Andrew Schultz, how many people are really doing that? Sure, there's Sarah Cooper. And evidently I shared a stage with her. I forgot about this. Our mutual friend, Raman David Nihil, with his show Funny Business, I believe she and I shared a stage in San Francisco, it might have been. And she's killing it, right? But they're the exception. Yeah, and, and I'd say that's a one and a half because those are like more the lip syncing thing and, and, and his is the original thoughts that he's had to the earlier point that I made. It's hard. It's very hard. And the, the reason I think it's much harder is that when you are playing a comedy club and not an arena or a theater, but a comedy club specifically, and Raman, you and I have gone to a lot of these, and you go to a comedy club and every seat's good. Every seat's good because the front seat's, are, I guess, technically a little better, but then you got to crane your neck and you might get picked on. The way back, you can't see quite as well, but oh my gosh, I'm safe. It's a womb back here, right? So literally every seat in a 300-seat comedy club usually is great. There are some obstructed views, but for the most part, you're eating the same onion rings, you're drinking the same beer, you're watching the same woman or man or anyone else on the gender spectrum on stage, right? This You're having the same experience. It's a womb. 
on Zoom, the difference there, I rhymed, is that we're all having a different experience, right? We're all watching it on a 27-inch iMac or an, uh, an old iPhone or a Microsoft Surface or a computer that may not have a different, you know, internet connection or not. And maybe it's jumping a little bit and there's a five-second lag. And then there's kids and then there's pets. And I don't know, I started a little bit late and then somebody's chatting and it destroys the whole concept of the womb. It's the whole idea was that we're all sitting in the same room watching the same thing, which is what makes this so frustrating because you can't do the job the same way. It doesn't land the same way. So you can make YouTube videos, you can make your content, but as far as doing live shows, a lot of comics decided they're just not going to do them. It's just not worth it. So then what do you do? I mean, the material of the day you know, we've gone beyond the you can't make this shit up outrage since 2016 mm-hmm. to like, we're all going to die. <laughs> like mm-hmm. th- there's ample, I, I don't know. I don't know what I'm asking. It's like the material's there, but um, the womb, the room, it's not there anymore. Is that, is that kind of what it is? Yeah. I mean, we're still being called in. I've been doing one all week for the Society of Asian Scientists and Engineers, also known as the Society of Scientists and Engineers. You don't really need the Asian part. And it's it's great because they need an MC. They need a host. So that role is very much needed on a Zoom call. And to do stand-up comedy pre-recorded or live still works in the sense for the audience because it's like, dude, I mean, it's far better. It translates a lot better than a lot of other entertainment. So I'm not saying that only self-servingly, like, please hire me and let's let's not you know cut it out entirely. But people need that comic relief. That said, I think the anxiety and the stress, I mean, we've talked about this, right? We've talked about the hope meter and- Well, I want to talk about that. Like, t- mm-hmm. th- that's actually what spurred me wanting to talk to you on the podcast. Mm-hmm. You called or I called, you know, we just wanted to check in with each other as friends do. Mm-hmm. And you told me about this like one to 10 scale that you've been asking friends, family, fellow comedians, ask Sharon this stuff because th- mm-hmm. this was great. So Sharon, what Raman and I were talking about was- Two things that kind of already exist. Okay, I put a little bit of a twist on it, but eh, I added a cherry on top of an already delicious Sunday. Let's put it that way. I don't want to take undue credit here, but using maybe an old tool off a shelf to mix metaphors, we could use this. I think of things in terms of the pain scale and the hopometer. And so the hopometer or the hopometer is something that is widely used. My friend Sachin, who worked at McKinsey, he's the one who told me about it. And it goes from zero to 100. And it's how hopeful are you feeling? 100 is more hopeful. Zero is completely hopeless and despairing. And so generally people, they're around a 60 or a 70. They, you know, most people are, are fairly optimistic, right? Or many people, I don't want to say most, but many people are fairly optimistic. And then there are times and we tend to split it into personal and then the world, right? So my usual hopeometer is probably for the world is probably like an 80. And for me personally, it's like a 90. That's my default state. I'm a generally very hopeful. Optimist. You are super hopeful. That's high. Very helpful. Yeah. Very helpful. During the Trump era, For me, it's probably fallen to more like 60 and for the world more like a 25. Yeah. Like it's that drastic. It's fallen down really, really much. So really, really much. (laughs) Really much. I'm glad that you have a a, a person who makes a living through words to say really, really much. Does that make sense though, Sharon? (laughs) Yeah, it does. It does. How do you feel? Like, how are you? Where are you guys on the hopeometer? I'm sort of, I'm with you. I I don't know if I'm as low as a 20 something, but I would say five years ago. So before all this, I was... Mm -hmm an 80 or a 90 Mm -hmm. for sure. I think coming out of the Obama era and just, just feeling really good and hopeful about everything. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. 
not just the Trump era, but just even though in just this year, just 2020 alone has been such a shock and a surprise and just full of so many twists and turns that I don't think anybody would have anticipated. It's definitely a lot lower. I'd say for the world, I'd probably say I'm at a 40. Okay. And then for me personally, maybe at a 60, but I'm the eternal optimist on the show, right? I think the silver lining to that is that there's only up from here. So <laughs> like, you know, I'm it's hoping it doesn't, yeah, I don't, I'm hoping it doesn't get worse, but like the, the good thing is that there's just, there's lots of opportunity for improvement. So I'm hopeful that that can happen and it will happen. Raman? Uh... <laughs> He's like, is there a negative scale? <laughs> uh, I mean, it depends how the rest of the, the week goes, you know, because I, I kind of want to couch my answer to allow it to go lower, you know, it can go lower. No, I mean, I'm not going to talk about my numbers this time, but something we did talk about and something that's been at the crux of a lot of our arguments is friends on the same side of these arguments sure. over the last four years is my perspective has changed with a child. Sure. You and I, I'll, I'll tell a funny story and then come back to this, but like it was 2016, no, 2016, 2017, I think inauguration had already happened or DJT had just been elected and my wife and I, we went away with our newborn and who's a baby by this point, no, not a newborn. And I think like the front cover of USA Today was, you know, swastikas at the hotel we stayed at. Hmm. And I was just like, God, God. And you were being very vocal about hmm. everything as you should be. You were using your mic in, in your powers. I, I would argue for good, but I couldn't take it anymore. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't because you were bringing my hope meter down. Sure. And I'm staring at this little girl saying, I have to be hopeful. And uh, it, it's the weirdest thing being a parent. It's at times I am the most scared I've ever been in my life. About her, but about the world she's going to inherit and how we're fucking it up. But then at times I'm really hopeful. And I'm really up because I have to be. So it, I hate to say it depends, you know, it, it really depends on my interactions with with my child and my interactions with the world in the context of the world that she's going to inherit, not me. I mean, the Supreme court alone changed dramatically. Mm -hmm. I already cared about it, mm -hmm. but the decisions that are going to impact her life, my, my wife and I, you know, our <laughs> women's right to choose doesn't apply to her and me as much as it does to our daughter. Now, does that make mm -hmm. sense? Sure. Your daughter's already here. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So my number's not that high. So I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's the issue, right? Is that I, I generally say there's a built-in bias to this question because you're either a parent or you're not, right? It's binary. I mean, it's hard to, I'm sure maybe we could find a, an exception to that, but it's like being half pregnant. You pick a side. And so you almost have to get up and, and go, right? It's like, you can't afford to be like that. And so for the non-parents, we could probably despair a little bit more. And so I'm not saying one's right or wrong. It's just an observation. Yeah, but- that leads me to the pain scale, 
right? So when you go to the hospital or to the doctor, they usually ask you on a scale, I believe it is from one to 10, 10 being the worst, how bad is your pain? And there's always the joke about like, why would you say anything less than 10? You're going to be sitting in the emergency room a lot longer, but they can see if it's a 10, you'll be writhing on the floor, right? So a 10 is so excruciating. You don't know if you're going to live. Okay. So God forbid you ever get to a 10. Sharon, I'm sure childbirth probably was a 10. And I think men say they can get close to a 10 with a kidney stone. Gosh, knock on wood. I hope that never happens to me, but you can get to the point where you are at a nine or a 10 and it is unsustainable. So, you know, I think of it, the little cherry or the twist I put on it was, well, I think of it like wind. I think of wind and sending our hopes and prayers, uh, thoughts and prayers down to the, the Gulf Coast this week with, with a Z-named hurricane, whatever it is. I'm not trying to avoid it. I just can't remember if it's Zeta or Zena or Zena or whatever it is. But I would, would say you have sustained wind and you have gusts. And after my last massive breakup in 2013, a friend of mine was asking how I was doing. And I said, look, I have a sustained pain of around seven and I have gusts up to eight. Like emotionally, this is pretty tough, but maybe it was more like a six, right? Like I'm okay. I'm, I'm not in a dark spot. I'm just in a rough place. And I think of it like that now. What is my pain, my anxiety, my depression on all that? And as a comic, I don't have that stuff. You would think most people in our profession tend to have it and you would be right, but I don't have a history of that. That said, I'd say my sustained pain during the Trump era on any given day is probably around a six. Usually, emotionally, it's probably like a two for me. So a five or a six is pretty bad. And then gusts all the way up to like an eight. I'm talking emotionally, not physically, but yeah, that's the other way I think about it. And that's tough. So my life is very much affected when people are like, well, how does, how does it affect you? I'm like, you're a douche. Do you know how big of a douche you are? I lost 95% of my income for the year. My entire way of living is completely destroyed. And my mom got COVID. So please don't talk to me about, oh, well, you're just making a big deal of it. It's like, no, screw you. This has affected me very directly. Yeah. I mean, the thing that's infuriating to me, and it's it's like I'm managing numbness and anger a lot, but it's like some of these things were avoidable. <laughs> like This other CEO at the company we used to work at said, if this guy made some of the mistakes or said some of the things at our company, he would have been fired. Yeah. And that was in reference to some of the stuff before the pandemic. But it's like lack of leadership has consequences. Like mm -hmm. people are dead or more people are dead than should have been. Mm -hmm. We can't see our parents. My daughter doesn't get to see her grandparents. You know, I... <sighs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sharon, I think we've covered everything. <laughs> what do you think? Speed round? I was like, I was Boy. hoping we'd end on a like, high note. comic? <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't funny at all. Exactly. I was literally like, hmm, maybe we can do a funny stories question and then go to speed round. But no, here, here we are. So... Let's just get into speed round and Rajiv, you've got to make it funny. Okay. <laughs> uh, pressure's on. Pressure's on. Yeah. You're a music nerd like me. Mm -hmm. This question has like no cadence in this conversation, but <laughs> I've been thinking about it because I'm trying to hype myself up. What do you, who do you think is the most political band, new and old right now? Rage Against the Machine which we've discussed, so you get credit for the mention. I, I, I believe that that stands out as a super political band. And if we're talking about bands, I mean, 
Yeah, I guess you could say run the jewels is pretty political too, but he goes so fast. I don't know how many people are understanding exactly what he's saying. You just get the rage from Rage Against the Machine. That's probably the answer I would give. All right. What's one of your favorite books, movies, or shows about politics? Don't Think of an Elephant by George Lakoff was Such really a good. good. Such a good book. Was that you, Roman? You might have recommended that to me. Yeah, dude, all your good shit came from me. Come on. <laughs> I'm telling you, man. Seriously, you, you're an influence on, on a person who's got, you know, hundreds of followers. Ouch. <laughs> you guys. That's a compliment, having that few. <laughs> Exactly. I'm, exactly. I'm the influencer to the influencers like you. Wow. When do you think we're going to know who wins? We're going to know much faster than people are saying. I think we're going to have a very good idea by the time we go to bed on election night, and we're going to know for sure by probably Thursday or Friday. Okay. Wow. You are really optimistic. Well, I don't know that the answer is going to go the way. <laughs> okay. Let me give you this answer because I know this is a speed round. I'll keep it short because I know my answers have been really long. Is... I will be able to answer that question by 5 p.m. Eastern on Election Day. So before the polls close, this is like the you know noon tip-off on a Thursday of March Madness. That's when you got to get your brackets in. So if there is widespread screwery, and this is what I really think it is. I don't think it's the litigation and Amy Coney Barrett and all these other people, although she's probably a name we should also shouldn't mention. But I really think it's going to be the widespread poll-watching, guns, proud boys, revolutionary type of stuff. If that's going down in urban areas like Philadelphia and the other urban areas in swing states, then yes, I think Trump's going to win just on sheer numbers because of intimidation and voter suppression, violent voter suppression. If that doesn't happen, I think Biden's actually going to win fairly big. So what's the first thing you're going to do if Biden wins? I'm already going to be drinking whiskey. So me too. (laughs) There you go. Either way, I'm going to do a shot, but I just hope it's a happy shot because I don't drink when I, I'm a very happy drunk. And I don't drink when I'm down. I don't drink. Uh, no, you, you have a point. You have a point that you cross. <laughs> oh, but I do that when I'm sober too. That's, 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 I'm, I'm just a more amplified version of like, I'm 80% happy and 20% angry. And, and, and I think both of them are just have an exclamation point on them when, when I'm drinking. So what if it does go the other way? I do a shot probably. And either way I do a prayer, I think. But I am only going to know when I get there. But I... My show, The Man in the Middle, will not cover politics. I'll just, I'll check out. I'm not going to watch the news. I'm going to completely check out of politics. And people are like, you, 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 you are. I'm like, I will. I will completely check out. I'm not saying I'll check out of social issues and other stuff like that, but I will probably talk more about fun stuff and movies and music. And I'm, what's I'm the deal that. with whatever? What's <laughs> the deal with the crumbling empire? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I won't. I'll, I'll check out. I'll, I'll feel, I feel like we lost. And I, you know, I'll STFU. I'll shut the F up like I did in 04. When Bush won again by a larger margin, I went, you know what? All right. Then you guys, that's what you wanted. I'll see y'all in 08. And that's probably what I'll do. But it'll mm-hmm. be more permanent. Who's your favorite person in politics right now that you would want to interview on a podcast? I really like Jonathan Haidt. He's sort of politics adjacent because he's more social, but I like that because I think of politics as more of a subset of social issues. So I like what he has to say from a nerdy perspective. And you've turned me on to Scott Galloway. I like him. And I read Andrew Sullivan in the political realm specifically. I know he's got some issues with his perspective. Give me a politician, some an elected person. But a politician that I would want to interview who's currently in office. Sure. 
I mean, the easy play, you'd have to say 45 just because, I mean, what the hell? Like, you'd have to go for the president always, no matter who it is. I mean, I'd want to be the one to, I'd be the one to be the one to crack him. Like with my dad. I mean, like, you can't get through to your dad. I'm like, challenge accepted. Let me see if I can get through to my dad. And on occasion, I have. <laughs> What's one final thought about the election that you'd want to give to our fellow Americans and the handful of Canadians who happen to listen to this <laughs> show? Soon to be future Canadians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's about to be a lot more Canadians, maybe even Mexicans. I don't know. We just got to get know, out. Okay, I, I got I to say this really quick. So we did the episode about putting up a sign, and we have these cool Canadian neighbors across the street that I texted the mom, and I was like, hey, you got a minute to have a chat in the street? And I told her about my anxiety about putting a sign up. She's like, yeah, we're going to put one up. And they put one up. A week later, they told me they were selling their house and moving back to Canada. Whoa. Their house is wow. on the market. Wow. <laughs> wow. Did you get the sign back? <laughs> it's a sign. I'll say this, and because I didn't get to mention it earlier, and I think, Raman, you were also intrigued by this idea. I reached out to some peers and, and people who are doing better than I in some ways, like Maz Jobrani, Eddie Brill, Fahim Anwar, some of these folks, and Alex Hooper, who just did America's Got Talent. And I connected with them to get their thoughts on how they're feeling and how they're dealing with it. And a lot of them had gone through quite a bit of serious personal tragedy which made me go, oh my gosh, if they're doing that and if black folks in this country are still fighting, man, they're still fighting after everything that blacks and Jews have been through, they still get up and fight. That is inspirational. I know that I haven't really been much of a comic on this podcast. So let me just double down and say this. Comedians are supposed to be cynical, but I have to tell you, I'll leave you at least for my part of it on an optimistic note. I live in constant awe of the human spirit. I'm not saying this to be cheesy, although it is cheesy, part of your world. If I already quoted Little Mermaid, where else can we go? How much farther down to the bottom of the ocean can we go <laughs> under the sea? But I will say this. I really live in awe of what people are able to endure and take and keep fighting. And that's all I'd say. I'm not going to be with you, but keep fighting. Well, you're literally not going to be with us when we do our post-election episode because you said, I don't know if I can. <laughs> I don't know if I can. Uh, please call me. I'm all, I'm all, I still want to be called. <laughs> Rajiv, thank you for wallowing into this space with us. And we'll see you on you the other side. To... Yeah. Everyone go vote. Yeah. Go vote. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now here's a preview of our next episode. Everyone go vote. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. 
Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.